Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm going to start with a couple of stories this morning. Here's the first. Um, There was a region uh, across from the Sea of Galilee in Jesus's time uh, that was known as the the Decapolis, uh, which meant 10 cities. Um, It had uh, been conquered by Alexander. The history goes back, obviously, further than that, but I'm going to start there. Uh, Later, it came under Roman power under the Emperor Pompey, uh, or Pompey. uh, It it became a stationing uh, region for uh, Roman soldiers. Uh, Jesus uh, went there a few times in his ministry, though most of the um, uh, Jewish people of his day would have avoided this region. They think that this is maybe the place that the prodigal son in the story would have, you know, like fled, you know, like that, that story. This is kind of where you would go to, uh, it's like the Vegas of, of, uh, of, of, of first century Israel. Um, but Jesus went there a few times in his ministry. And uh, on one of the first occasions that he was there, he meets a man who was an outcast from society, uh, who is mentally, physically, spiritually tormented. Um, They say that he lives among the tombs, that he can't be in society, and that society has sort of pushed him uh, to the outskirts. He's kind of uh, living um, a living dead sort of experience. His his home is is a graveyard. Um, he has a tremendous spiritual problem in that he has become filled with, with many malignant, tormenting spirits. Um, he is experiencing demonic possession. So welcome to the sermon. Hope you're having a great morning so far. Um, Jesus is uh, very compassionate towards the man. He has mercy on him. He shows him kindness. If you want to read the whole story, it's recorded in Mark 10. Um, he actually delivers him. He sets, them free, he sets him free from his spiritual torment. Um, and near the end of the account, the man is sitting with Jesus, and it says that the text says he is in his right mind. Um, as, as the story ends, the man, as you might imagine, wants to come with Jesus, uh, but Jesus tells him to stay in the Decapolis and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. It's a wild story. Uh, you can read it for more details. Uh, the whole issue of someone being filled with demonic spirits is awful, and maybe not how you would hope that the sermon would begin. Maybe it's just like the type of thing crazy religious people believe in, but um, I got to speak actually for several hours with uh, an expert on this subject who trains Catholic priests um, to do uh, the solemn exorcism in uh, Pittsburgh. He'd sat in thousands of, of, of these deliverance um, you know, processes. And um, 
he, he did mention that like uh, there are elements of the story that he sees showing up over and over again. And often when there's a spiritual deliverance that takes place, there's still a lot of work that has to happen with mental health and just like getting someone's life reoriented to, um, to this new state of being. And he talks about this whole, he talked to me a lot about the holistic process of, of, uh, of this. He's like, it's not like, it's not like the movies basically. And um, it, was, it was fascinating. So there's so much more to say, but whatever happened to this man? He was apparently totally different after this. His entire life and experience was changed. And um, interestingly, the next time Jesus comes to the, the, the Decapolis, this region that most people avoided, people are looking for him. So I think we have enough evidence to uh, believe that this man actually did what Jesus told him. He went around telling people what the Lord had done for him, how he had been set free. And it was such a powerful testimony because people knew what he was like before and now the after was something so different that there began to be an, a, a deep interest in Jesus and he shows up again in the Decapolis and people are bringing their loved ones and friends and family to him um, where before they were basically asking him to leave. That's story one. Story two. Jesus' cousin got thrown in jail on the whim of a crooked political leader. He was in prison because he criticized Herod for marrying his brother's wife. Um, this happens after this man had had a prolific ministry helping many in Israel turn back to Yahweh. He actually baptized Jesus. Um, he was telling many people that Jesus had come as the Messiah, that however prolific his ministry had been, he, in his own words, he wasn't even worthy to untie the sandal lace of Jesus' Birkenstocks. John the Baptist is who I'm talking about. And he gets arrested and thrown in jail by Herod. And once he's in jail, all of a sudden he begins to question a little bit, is this Jesus really who I've now said he is? And, and the account is recorded in Luke 7. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Because all of the words sounded fantastic. Um, the scope of Jesus' ministry, which we've been talking about uh, in, in Epiphany, uh, John, John would have expected that, but now he's in jail. At the very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blesses anyone who's not stumble on my account. Now, very interesting list. Basically the same thing that you see in Luke 4 when Jesus reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he gives us sort of like resolutions for what is ministry is going to be about. There is one, however, that he leaves out when he mentions it to John's followers. Did you notice it? He doesn't say anything about freedom to the prisoners. Probably the one John really wanted to know about. He's in jail. So Jesus does not get John out of jail, and then the story takes a really rough turn. He is beheaded by Herod. Story three, very exciting so far. Two of the early leaders uh, in the movement of Jesus as it was sweeping across the Roman world, Paul and Silas, were in a city called Philippi. A Roman colony, a leading city of the district of Macedonia. The story, if you want to find it, is found in Acts 16. Uh, 
And while they were in Philippi, they end up thrown in jail. And the circumstances they're being thrown in jail is quite unjust. And I won't get into all the background, but they're severely flogged and beaten and thrown in jail. Uh, while they're in jail, it says that they're uh, worshiping God and that they're, they're getting the other prisoners kind of involved. They're having a little worship service in the jail. And this is what it says. About midnight, Acts 16, yeah, Paul and Silas were praying and sing, singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the, prisons were the prison were shaken. All at once, or at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. This is tough if you're the jailer. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped and he would have been executed if they had. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The account goes on, this man, and it says his whole household came to faith in, in Christ. So the next morning, um, the magistrate sends word that Paul and Silas should be released, but they refuse. So they're let out of jail, but they hang around. And the reason they hang around is they say, listen, you imprisoned us unjustly. We didn't have a trial. We're Roman citizens. You beat us and you threw us into jail. If you want us to get out, you come down and let us out and bring us into the city since you did this all in public. And, and they sit there. And Paul sits in jail and they come down and they bring him out. And they bring him out into the public square. And they basically like, we're so sorry. Please leave. Please leave. You can just imagine like sign this NDA and just move on. And, and Paul says, absolutely not. Uh, we will leave, but in our own time. And it says, it says like in, in Paul. Paul, like, so you just see him like going, he's like, we're going to Lydia's house, and he goes to Lydia's house, and then he leaves the city. Story four. We're moving along. In 1895, a man named William Griffith Wilson was born in East Dorset, Vermont. Uh, he had a challenging early life uh, with a few high points. Eventually, he got married to a, man, a woman named Lois before serving in World War I. Uh, after the war, he spent the early part of his career as a stock speculator. He did very well for himself. Uh, he might have had a long and successful career, except for he had a pretty serious drinking problem. And this drinking problem uh, got worse and then continued to get worse. Uh, no matter how hard he tried or what seemed to be at stake, he could not break free from this compulsion to, to drink and to drink quite a bit too much. Um, when stocks crashed in 1929, he lost a fortune, as so many did, and his life continued to spiral from there. By 1933, he was hospitalized a number of times in New York City uh, for his drinking and uh, quote-unquote alcoholic insanity, and there was not much hope for him. After, after getting out of being committed and making all the types of promises someone makes in a situation like that, uh, this, this, this man uh, was basically still uh, hiding gin all over his house and still drinking uh, from early in the morning till, till late at night. And in, ni in November of 1934, Wilson was visited by an old drinking companion, Ebby Thatcher, and Wilson was astounded to find that his old drinking buddy, who had also previously been committed for alcoholic insanity, seemed to be doing well. He said he was clear-eyed. He seemed to be sober. And Thatcher came in, and he told him about his experience of being introduced to a program of recovery um, at a Christian group called the Oxford Group. And this uh, sort of like began to ring in Bill, Bill Wilson's ears that, that 
you know, maybe there was a, a possibility. The seed was sown. Uh, a while later, I'm skipping many details, but Bill Wilson had a white light conversion experience and began to live a sober life uh, in, in, some, in some kind of a new way. But uh, as, as is bound to happen, he had a very tempting experience. He was on a, a, a business trip to Akron, Ohio that was not going terribly well. And uh, he, he came out into the lobby of his hotel. And after a, a period of time being sober, he heard the roar of the bar at the end of the hotel lobby. And he wanted just to go in there because that's what he knew. That's how he knew to cope with life. That, that had become his, his process. But on the other end of the hotel lobby was a phone. And he stood there, and there's this like, moment where he debates between going in the bar, going in the phone, and he ends up going over to the phone and trying to find help, basically trying to find another person who is in his situation who might be able to relate to him. And he has this famous interaction with a physician in the area, Dr. Bob, and the two of them are able to help one another in their, in their aim to stay, to stay sober. And um, through, through their, their, their work, their conversation, um, based on some of the, uh, the work of some of the other groups that were doing this type of work at the time, the Oxford group, they came up with a, a process, a spiritual process of recovery. I think they would say, with God's help and with the help of other people that were in their situation, they arrived at a spiritual program for recovery from alcoholism. And they set down 12 steps that have literally been followed by millions of people to deal with and to push back and to fight against, uh, recover from addiction, not just alcoholism, but all manner of addictions. I'm gonna read the steps to you because uh, most people just haven't heard all of them read in, in one place, and I think they're pretty pretty interesting because um, I don't know what your immediate assumptions are when you think about someone racked or trapped in addiction, but um, this program of recovery is, is pretty interesting, and it is certainly a spiritual program. Here's, here's the steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carried this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Did you know how much God is in there? It is entirely a spiritual program for recovery from being utterly mentally, physically, and we might say spiritually trapped. 
I had no real reason necessarily to, to pay attention to these steps until my own father uh, I, it came alive that he had sort of hidden his alcoholism for us for many years. And uh, the, the, the visit to Florida where I had just been married to Allison and he came to visit us, it was the last time I saw him alive. And we had some of the most meaningful conversations we'd ever had. And he took me to an AA meeting. It was an open meeting and he wanted me to see what it was all about, see what it was like. And I'll never forget my dad standing up to share and, and weeping openly something I didn't see him do very often, putting his hand on my shoulder and saying that he wanted to move forward in this process of love and transformation for our family and for himself and for and, and, and in calling out to God in the ways that you just heard outlined. Last time I saw him alive and he died at 50 with a 30-day chip from AA in his pocket. One of my favorite stories is that the day he died, he went fishing with his sponsor, and this is South Carolina, and uh, they, were, they were fishing together, and... Um, the, the sponsor caught nothing, and my dad caught three huge, largemouth bass. Just, I think, just like, think about whatever you want. To me, it's like a little gift from God, you know, his last, his last day. And so this program was tremendously important, and I, I, I've, I've come back to it, uh, you know, so many times thinking about that reality. Story five, how we doing? Everyone okay? We're to story five already. Okay, many of the works of the German philosopher Edmund uh, Husseri, who specialized in phenomenology, which is the philosophy, uh, uh, the philosophical study of the structures of experience and consciousness. Many of this, this German philosopher Edward Husseri's works were first tran translated into English by a longtime professor of philosophy at the University of California who was named Dallas Albert Willard. Uh, Willard was, would go on to expand on Husseri's work, and he would come to write in great detail about the process of spiritual change. Um, as a follower of Jesus, he worked extensively on what he called a reliable pattern for spiritual change. And three of the essential parts of the Christian change that Willard outlined, uh, we've mentioned in this, in this uh, setting before, but um, he outlines, and you can see the full, all the means that I'm about to mention are, are in a book called Renovation of the Heart, which uh, we, we've recommended at length before. But um, three essential parts of a process for change are vision, intention, and means. Vision. You have to have some idea of, of what you want to grow into. What, like if you find yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually trapped, what, is a, what, what would a different type of life look like? You have to have some kind of imagination for what would be possible if you changed. And Willard says in Renovation of the Heart, this, this vision of life cannot come to us naturally, though the human soul depths automatically cry out for something like it. And from time to time, our deepest thinkers, visionaries, and artists capture aspects of it. It is is a vision that has to be given to humanity by God himself. In a revelation suited to our condition, we cannot clearly see it on our own. So you have to have a vision for change. And Willard's saying that it's essential that that come from a power greater than yourself, which is similarly what Bill Wilson said as well, that like your willpower is not going to be enough. You're not going to just be able to stir up enough resources in and of yourselves to change when you really find yourself trapped physically, emotionally, 
or spiritually. You also have to have intention. It's not enough to see where you could go if you began to change. You have to deliberately intend to change. You have to be willing to take the steps of action that are necessary to be transformed. And if you remember the steps, like God was involved in every single one of those, Willard would attest to the same reality, that both the vision and the intention are carried along in intimate connection to God. And then the means. You need an actual process of change. And so the 12 steps are one process of change, right? If you look, if you, if you look in the New Testament, you will see an, a, a spiritual process of change described in a bunch of different ways through a bunch of different stories. Dallas Willard is trying to codify and distill a lot of that in his writing to say, this is what it means to change as a follower of Jesus. You have to have a process you can go through. Again, the book is Renovation of the Heart if you're interested in that. When I read Willard for the first time, I realized how many people that had mentored me and spoken into my life were familiar with his writings. And that's an interesting feeling where you're like, hey, I see where they got this from all of a sudden. And basically, I I realized that um, a process of change has to acknowledge the reality that we are whole people. I grew up in a tradition in Christianity that sometimes overemphasized just the spiritual side of things and and indicated that like a complex web of of, of ensnarement in your life could be be, uh, fixed by just a simple spiritual solution. And and yet Willard and, and, and these other people who write extensively on change talk about how we're whole people. And so Willard's writing was tremendously important for me to remember that I have a body, that that body it receives information through five senses and has my entire life and it processes that in my soul, in my mind, in my will, in my emotions. And I have a certain type of personality, a certain type of preferences. You might say my habits of living have been formed by that process. And I have a spirit, some way that I can meaningfully connect with God. I, I, I believe like we can even, this is part of the mystery of what's going on in this middle school on Sundays is that many of you f- sense in your spirit the presence presence of God when we're worshiping and, 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 and we're whole beings. We're, we're a body, soul, spirit in a, in a web of social relationships. I came upon the echo of Willard's teaching in my mentor's instructions uh, in some of my most desperate times, times when I was absolutely trapped by anxiety. And do you think I wanted to feel better? Absolutely. Do you think I wanted to be different? Absolutely, and yet I tried over and over again to enact a pattern of change by my own strength, and it failed over and over and over again. So, that's our five stories. I told you five different accounts, people in pretty wildly different situations. The demoniac, John the Baptist, Paul and Silas, Bill Wilson, Dallas Willard, why? Because in, in Luke 4, Jesus declares some crucial elements of the, spo- uh, of the scope of his ministry. And one of them he hits, he says, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. And, and just a, a, a moment later, to set the oppressed free. Jesus says in the middle of what we've been calling his resolutions, the the aims for his ministry, that he's going to have a ministry of freedom, that people are going to be set free. From this passage, we've been saying that the ministry of Jesus is a ministry of salvation, freedom, healing, mercy, love, and favor. That sounds wonderful. But does Jesus really set people free? If you're in jail, 
Should you have any realistic expectation that the ministry of Jesus or Jesus himself is going to get you out? If you're trapped in some other way, beyond your ability to get free mentally or spiritually or, or, or physically, can, can Christ set you free? That's a real important question. What is the ministry of, of, of freedom that Jesus walked in? And I think we need a variety of stories in our minds to get moving in the right direction. Because, uh, right, and, and there's certainly more, right? I, I was tempted to talk about the movie that's out right now, Just Mercy. Have you guys seen the previews for this? Or maybe some of you have seen it, um, right? It's telling the story of this uh, Harvard attorney, Brian Stevenson, who's played by Michael B. Jordan. Uh, he's fighting to overturn the hasty and prejudicial conviction of Walter McMillan, played by Jamie Foxx, who's on death row in Alabama. And uh, the film, it reminds us of the institutional racism that has plagued the American justice system and what a test of faith and courage it can be to push back on that. Another story we certainly could have told. We need a variety of stories, though, in our mind because when we hear proclaim freedom to the prisoners, I think it can be easy to just simply over-spiritualize it or kind of mentally dismiss it. If you're in jail, rightfully or wrongfully convicted, what does the ministry of Jesus have to say? And here's the thing. This is why it's a little problematic. We don't have recorded a time in Jesus' ministry in his three-year public ministry where he goes around busting people out of jail. Like the recovery of sight to the blind, we got a bunch of examples of that. But he's not kicking down the doors of any prisons and dragging people out. As a matter of fact, he gets imprisoned himself. He gives grace and kindness to another man who's dying, who's been convicted of a capital offense. He advocates that we should be those who visit people in prison. But when John the Baptist's cousin is put in jail, he does not miraculously get him out. But we need the other story as well, right? We have to remember, like Paul and Silas, on the other hand, were miraculously set free from jail, but then they decide to stay and confront the injustice that got them there. So Jesus, and maybe this is wonderful or frustrating, does not go about working a directly political revolution. And people wanted him to do that. They wanted him to throw out the powers that be by force. Get them out of here. Get Rome out of our land. Get them off our promises. Get them out of here. Push them back. He doesn't overthrow Rome, though many wish he would. He seems to be going after people's hearts and lives in a, in, in, in a significantly different way than people are expecting. His res so, one result of that at least is that his revolution does not last one generation only or as long as they could remain in military power, right? Because that's what happens. If you drive someone out by force, then you just wait till the next person who's stronger than you comes. The revolution of Jesus is not directly violently political, it is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is spiritual. It is, it, I think it, it impacts the, the whole of our human lives. But he doesn't kick down doors and bring people out of jail. So, I mentioned this a couple of times. It's important not to over-spiritualize Jesus' words when it's convenient and be like, well, of course he didn't do that. He was obviously meaning spiritually. But we also can't make the opposite mistake and miss when he is directly making a spiritual emphasis and the text seems to be clear on that. My father spent years going into prisons, I've mentioned this before, to share the love of Christ there that had impacted his own life and um, he saw many people experience uh, love and salvation, experience Christ, become, you might even say, totally new people and 
they would write letters, they would call the house, we would go visit them. And it was interesting that these people who had no chance of getting out of jail seemed to be remarkably free, even in their situation. While many of us also know, we've known others, or maybe we ourselves, have known profound senses of being trapped in our lives, even though we absolutely have the freedom to go wherever we want to. Right? So let's at least admit this. There are many prisons. Alcoholism, drug addiction, but also jealousy. <laughs> Anger may enslave you. Fear and anxiety, you cannot combat just with your willpower. You can't seem to calm yourself down. You can't seem to keep from living on this either low level or, or spiking anxiety in your life. Depression, we can be tr utterly trapped beyond our ability to get free on our own in depression. Some of us know the, the agonizing pain of feeling trapped in loneliness. Some of us know the addiction of, of, of pornography, Addiction maybe, maybe to our phones and to social media, right? The first thing I do in the morning is grab and I check and sort of that dopamine release is so ingrained. Or overeating or binge TV watching or on and on and on and on. We know there are many prisons. There are many ways to be physically, spiritually, and emotionally trapped. So how can we have what Willard talked about? Vision, intention, and means to move towards freedom. I think Bill Wilson's story is compelling in that he was not a man that was particularly looking for God, and yet God came knocking on his door in the form of relationships, and so he stumbles upon, almost he stumbles upon the vision, intention, and means that were necessary for his own life transformation, right? The pattern of change from serious addiction that he ends up spreading to the world is a holistic process of spiritual change, very much like what you find outlined in the New Testament. I heard a prominent Catholic priest call the 12 steps the best, most lasting spiritual gifts America has given to the world. The steps require, require God. They require a power greater than themselves. The process, if you remember it, it's deeply relational and, and a power greater than ourselves is, is through the whole, the whole bit. It's through the whole process of change. It starts with admitting, right? So now we're gonna be getting into what we, what we mean when we're talking about how do you grow towards freedom if you find yourself trapped, right? It starts with admitting you need help, then asking God, then going after the underlying issues that have contributed to your problem, asking God to take those away, making as much right as you can with your fellow human beings, staying daily connected to God in prayer and confession, staying open to serving and loving your neighbor in order to stay healthy and free in your own heart. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stands up in a synagogue. He reads from an ancient prophet, Isaiah, and he says, my ministry is salvation, freedom, healing, mercy, love, and favor. He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And then his ministry does show us over and over again him setting people free. So as we wrap up, how does Christ set someone free? In the simplest terms, and this is too simple, you ask and he will set you free. 
Now, much of the work before you get to that point of asking, because many of us have a built-in resistor to even asking for help or admitting that we have a problem or, or we can handle it on our own. And, and a lot of times God's loving action in our lives before we get to the place of ask is helping us to come and admit that we actually need it. But you have to believe that you need a change. And right, this change, you might be ensnared and you have a, a, a clear understanding of the biblical definition of sin. That sin is essentially trying to meet the deepest needs of the human life out of our own resources. And that we can get ensnared in that in so many different ways. In ways that are obviously uh, evil and in ways that look really good on the outside. Either way, we're trying to meet the deep needs of our life and we're trying to do it on only human resources, right? And that we might come to the place where we admit we need change. Or maybe it's, it's so glaring, it's addiction. And you know I can't stop thinking this way or acting this way or using this substance or doing this thing. Or maybe I'm so alone, I do not feel known and loved, and I feel absolutely trapped in a prison of loneliness. Or maybe it's like, I have me meaning has leaked out of my life in such a way that I find only in my spirit apathy. Or you're trapped in any of the other ways we've mentioned up to this point. And I wanna say this, Jesus' freedom comes through relationship. What he does when he comes to people is he invites them into relationship. Come and follow me. That's how you begin the journey of discipleship. Come and follow me. We trust the gospel, right, from our vantage point here. We trust that his life counts for us, that his death counts for us, that his resurrection is something that we can have a share in. We trust that, and then we, we, we are declared part of the family. We are, we are declared, for, this is how, this is part of the mystery of it, is that you'll be declared free, and then you learn to live into that freedom. This is a process that goes on in, in Christian transformation, is that God says, you're in the family, nothing you have to do to be in. You're absolutely in, you're embraced, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're healed. You don't have to bring an ounce of deserving or earning to the table. It's utterly a free gift. And now I want you to learn to walk in this freedom by remembering who you are. I said in the simplest possible terms, you ask and he will do it. Right? There's often a pattern to how that freedom takes hold. We say this around here all the time. When someone experiences the salvation of Jesus, they trust the gospel, they become a follower of Jesus, they change in the most fundamental aspects of their life, their identity, their desires, and the rhythms of their life. We've said this for years. Like Who you are, how you understand yourself, how you understand your fundamental identity, that you were known, that you were loved, that you were part of the family, that you're brought in, that you're empowered with everything you need by the Holy Spirit. Who you are, what you want, what you want begins to change. It's almost like the taste buds of your soul become different. Things you had no interest in before begin to, begin to stir up and be changed. Who you are, what you want, and then that has to have an expression in your life. There has to be steps of action, how you live. Another way of describing this ongoing pattern is that we have breakthrough and then changed habits. Uh, a mentor of mine who, who came and prayed for our church and, and spoke into our, our lives at the beginning when we were just, uh, j before our public worship had even begun, uh, he came and he drew a circle similar to this, but he, he added an element to it that I think is important because there's two different ways in the New Testament for speaking about time. One is chronologically, let's, so chronos, that you're going through time in seconds, minutes, days, hours, weeks, linearly forward in time. Really difficult to go back unless you have some sort of DeLorean, but... Um, 
Chronos is how we measure time. And then kairos is another way the New Testament measures time, and it's different than chronological time, in that this is a time when God is acting in a particularly special way. And some of you will be able to look back at your lives and say, I know I was passing through time chronologically, but there came a time where God seemed to intervene in a way that was, that was different, that was unique, that was special, that got my attention, and you were in a kairos moment, a moment where you begin to say, I need out of this prison. I need out of this addiction. I, I need out of this self-led, indulgent life. I need out, and, and the Kairos moment begins, and then you can begin a process of change. And that change, if, if you wanna talk about it in this way, comes through breakthrough and habits. And I'm not saying, like, God is involved in the breakthrough, and God is involved in the habit change. Both absolutely depend on God. I, so we, we what, the way it works is on a Sunday, I'll say, hey, if you feel trapped in something, come forward and pray. And some of you might come down, you might stand right here, have your arms open, and someone you don't even know comes by, lays a hand on your shoulder, prays for you, and it's deeply, powerfully encouraging. And it's like you feel a little weight lifted off your shoulders. And you begin to think about this addiction or this pattern or this trap in a different way. And you begin to experience a breakthrough. Now, many of you have had incidences like that in your life where you felt God really close. But then you come back two months later, three months later, two years later, and you're like, what happened? Because you never sort of implemented the reality of that breakthrough in the habits of your daily living, of, of your actual life. And so the, the change sort of seeped away. We have to have this process of breakthrough and habits. This is how God sets us free. And just so you know, like well, this is the type of language we use at Trinity Grace, but if, if you came from, from somewhere else, or just so you know what we're talking about here, it's repentance and obedience, it's finally surrendering and saying, God, I want you to have my whole heart, mind, and strength. I'm giving you my life. And then obedience is like learning to walk in this relationship of love. It's repentance and obedience. It's deliverance and a new life. It's surrender and sustained change. If you want to use the old theological terms, it's justification and sanctification. In one moment, you're declared fully right, adopted, because not of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done, his life, death, or death and resurrection. You're brought into the family, you're healed, cleansed, and, 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 and utterly loved, and then you begin this process of growing into who you've always met, been meant to be. The truest expression of yourself in relationship with God, in relationship with others. What's it gonna be defined by? Something like loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself, walking in that freedom. So just, I know we've hit it in a bunch of different ways, but just the breakthrough stage, right, and these bleed over, it's it, it, elements that are important in it, and this, it, like, you'll see these jumbled up, it's not exactly linear, but it's admission. It's saying, listen, I keep saying the same prayer for forgiveness every day for the same thing. I keep wrestling with and praying down here at the front of our church the same exact thing. Like I'm not experiencing any substantial sustained change in my life. I have to admit that I need help. I have to confess that I can't do this on my own. And I need to have an encounter with God. I need to have an encounter with a God who's, who has resources of love and forgiveness and mercy that are beyond myself. A God who can literally, can put his spirit in you so that you don't have to simply rely on willpower. You can rely on the Holy Spirit for change. If you wanna hear that, see that outlined, please do a detailed study of Romans 8. It is fantastic. It is how you live in the freedom of the indwelling spirit of Christ. 
Breakthrough involves admission, confession, and encounter with God. It involves trusting that encounter and surrender. The habit change that follows is, is, is a process of exploration, right? You, you, you come to, to be, feel like God is setting me free from this addiction to pornography. And then you go back and you remember, when did I first encounter pornography? Oh, my neighbor Dino Demas showed me this picture when I was six years old and he put it in front of my face and he said, uh, did you get an erection? And I said, no. And he said, you're gay. And I was like, what? You know that from this? Man, that is a real something to think about. A little while later, I discover a Playboy magazine outside, thrown away outside of my house. I, I bring it in like, who threw this away anyway? Outside. Parents didn't seem to want to talk about it. But I have to go back and start looking at it. How did this begin in my life? How did, how did this thing, right? Oh, the first time I had a drink, I had this like swell of courage I felt like I had no fear whatsoever. I can go across the room, right? And I can, I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. Actually, the first time I had a drink, I told my friend bragging that I could do a 12-ounce shot of Absolute. And I woke up the next morning and I had a gash from here to here, blood all over my shoulders. And I had thrown up and peed on myself. And I was like, let's do that again. <laughs> cool. <laughs> TMI, I know. I just want you to know, right? I'm not saying like, I've struggled to do my devotion only four out of the six days this week. Uh, we're talking about real problems here. People, we need real breakthrough. Your marriages are falling apart. Your mind is wrapped up in anxiety. You feel totally alone. You're like, I've given myself to this career and I hate it. What do I do? How do I get free? How do I get a new life? I can't do the same pattern anymore. And we have to have breakthrough and then we have to have habit change. And both are absolutely sustained by the love and care of God. Breakthrough in habits, and that means your life becomes a transformation of who you are, what you want, how you live. Jesus is claiming he can set us free. In John 8, we hear the famous verse, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching and you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, which is him, relational. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. Check your history. How can you say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very true. It's like you're in an argument and you're just like saying stuff and then you're like, oh, well, I went too far, of course. <laughs> Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. This thing that we went to for enjoyment because it met some real need. It's a real need. And it met some real need, but now it has come to enslave us. In the beginning, it promised us everything and cost us nothing. And as we go in it, eventually it's giving us nothing and costing us everything. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever, and that is how you were brought in. So if the son has set you free, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Come on, right? Let's go. Sorry for clapping. How far is Jesus willing to go to give us this freedom? I'm not sorry for clapping. I liked it. How far is Jesus willing to go to give us his freedom? He becomes a prisoner himself. By right, the end of the Gospels, 
They're really intentional. They're flying through the details of his life. He's over here in this city. He's over here in this city. He's doing miracles. People are following 5,000 eat. This guy sees, da, da, da. Then they really slow down when they get to the end of his life because all the details of the last week are tremendously important. And where do we find Jesus on, the, on Good Friday? The Thursday night before, right? He's in jail. On trumped up charges, he's arrested and thrown in jail so that he can face those accusers and the accuser that speaks in every one of your hearts and minds and says, you're not enough, you'll always be this way, you'll always be trapped, you'll never be enough, you're gonna always be in this place. He confronts the accuser. He breaks the power of sin and death. When we have anything other than God as our God, we slowly or quickly unravel and often end up in tremendous bondage. Christ lived a life on our behalf. He died a death on our behalf. One of his last words of ministry was to a man who couldn't possibly be more trapped. He's the thief on a cross, nailed next to him. Capital offense, you're dying, not getting out. And he speaks promise to that man, life to that man, healing to that man. Freedom even. Today you will be with me in paradise. You want to know the part that makes it paradise? Today you will be with me. In the Christian vision, paradise is relational. It's not a mansion and a water slide and you can hit shots from anywhere on the court. That's my kid's vision. (laughs) It's you're with God and you're with us, you're with the family of every tribe and tongue and nation across the centuries, people that are totally not like you but are now family adopted into the kingdom together and free. The demoniac, John the Baptist, Paul and Silas, Bill Wilson, Dallas Willard, Caleb Clardy, Peter Troutman, Jackie Griffin, Lee Sullivan, even, <laughs> Michelle, Michelle Gare, Every one of you, like, let's read out the names. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Do not live any longer in the yoke of slavery. So that's your invitation this morning. You can be free. Are you living trapped in some way? Are you living a slave to something in some way? You can be free. Christians, adopted sons and daughters of God, full of the spirit, crowned with glory, let me tell you this, you also can carry a message of freedom. You can carry a message of freedom and say, this was my experience with this, with, with, with booze, with anxiety, with these substances, with, with p- pornography, with whatever. You can carry your own experience and say, God set me free from this and here's exactly how it worked. It was breakthrough and it was habits. And I had to have a community that I could keep coming back to and scratch my head and weep and say, I, I failed again. What do I do? We can be free. We can carry a message of freedom. What is the message your life carries? And we can work for freedom for those who do not have it. We can ask the question, is our life, is our life good news for others in union with Christ and by the power of the Spirit? If the Son has set you free, then that's the final word. There's no one with more authority than Christ to say you're trapped again. But we have those old habits and patterns. We're so used to coping with life. Let us stand in our freedom. Let us walk in it. Some of you need to experience it today, and we're going to pray for that. Let's move into response. Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would move by your Spirit right now in this place. 
that you would speak in such a personal way what each person needs to hear. I pray for those who are trapped in one of the many prisons that we mentioned this morning that your freedom would break through in their lives. Come Holy Spirit, please do what only you can do, what we cannot do on our own. As we worship, as we pray, would you just minister freedom to us, minister freedom to us, minister freedom to us in the name of Jesus, by the power of Christ, by your life, death, and resurrection. We know we will be heard. We're not coming on our our own ability to keep our promises. We're coming in the name of Christ. Jesus' name, amen. Church, I wanna invite you to stand. We're gonna come to the table in just a few minutes, but right before that, we're gonna sing this one song, uh, No Longer Slaves. It's a, it's a modern anthem of, of spiritual freedom. And I just wanna invite you, some of you, the Spirit has been prompting you, and you know right now you need to come forward in some way you know that you need to experience the freedom of Christ this morning. And I wanna invite you right away, just so we have enough time to pray for you, to come forward. I want you just to stand wherever you land down here and put your hands out. Let somebody come by and pray for you to experience breakthrough and spiritual freedom this morning. We're gonna have a song for people to come and respond in that particular way. And then after this song, I'm gonna invite everyone to communion. We'll have our benediction and we'll go out into our day. But I believe that as we are praying before the service, that the Holy Spirit wants to minister the freedom of Christ in this place this morning. So as we sing this song, worship God, unburden your hearts. If you know the Spirit's prompting you, come forward, just stand right here. You don't have to say all the mess of your life. Just open your hands and somebody will pray for you. People don't know if you're like trying to get freedom from something really crazy or just like, I've been overspending a tiny bit. So they're not gonna know. Just put your hands out and pray. Let's worship. Come forward for prayer. We need our prayer team to be here to receive people. Uh, And then in just a minute or two, I'm gonna invite us to the communion table. Let's sing this with all of our might. Sing this over our own hearts.